You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm Eleanor Rust, Marketing Director at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music innovation and music technology. Music Tectonics is not just a podcast. It's also an annual music innovation conference. After two years online and hybrid, our 2022 conference will take place in person and face-to-face October 25th through 27th in Santa Monica, California. That's Los Angeles's neighbor by the beach. In the lead-up to the event, we have a mini-series on the podcast on the stars of the 2022 Music Tectonics Conference. These folks are star music innovators in their own right, but they're also star sponsors of this year's edition of the conference. Our sponsors are big thinkers and future-focused movers and shakers. They sign on to sponsor in order to support the community that gathers at Music Tectonics. You'll get to meet them at the event, but for now, keep listening to get to know two of them. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Dhruv Prasad, the chairperson of Music Reports. And just for those of you who don't know, Music Reports is the leading independent provider of music rights data, administration, and management services in the world. Their proprietary and continuously updated music and cue sheet databases, Songdex and QTrack, power a full-service technology platform for advanced music licensing, rights administration, royalty reporting, and payment settlement for the music industry. Basically all the hard stuff, right? Um, So welcome so much, Drew, to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to lead Music Reports? Uh, sure. I have a background as an investor in media and entertainment companies, and then uh, later as uh, a operator of uh, a broadcasting company. So about now, about 12 years ago, uh, I started a company called Town Square Media that became uh, one of the largest radio broadcasters in America, uh, along with a pretty significant live events, music festival and concert producer. Uh, and then a digital content, digital marketing services company. And it was actually during that time at at Town Square when I started to really get uh, an understanding of music rights and the royalty administration system. And uh, when I left Town Square in 2019, uh, I joined a a private equity firm called Mid-Ocean Partners. And the two of us together focused on uh, investing in companies that uh, I had a background in as an operator. And we initially, because of my interest and the market dynamics around music royalties and music licensing, which as you know, are incredibly complex uh, and Byzantine, uh, it seemed like a really interesting opportunity for uh, technology companies who could uh, solve the problems, the myriad problems that exist uh, in music licensing. And that's how we became aware of Music Reports. Uh, The thing that drew us and me to Music Reports in particular was here you had this really, really special company that was not well known in the marketplace, um, but had two really unique assets. The first was Songdex, which is one of the core assets of Music Reports. It's the largest independent source of music publishing and music ownership information in the world. And then second, uh, this deep, deep reservoir of talented people who had worked in this business 
uh, and specifically in music rights, music licensing and music rights for decades. Um, and so you had kind of this world-class asset, which was the data uh, coupled with really world-class expertise uh, among the people at Music Reports uh, around this really, really complicated and esoteric topic. Uh, and those were the things that led us to make uh, an investment. We acquired the company in August of 2020. Uh, and when we did, uh, I stepped in to, to lead the company. That's really, thanks. That's that's an amazing background. And I love that you came from the broadcast side and can really understand uh, one set of the pain points of music licensing. Um, of course, their publishers have their own <laughs> woes. And it's really awesome to have someone who can get the big picture. So... Speaking well, of the once, big, once a broadcaster, always a broadcaster. Uh, <laughs> amazing. Um, so, speaking of the big picture, how does Music Reports fit into the larger music licensing web of PROs, mechanical licensing organizations, broadcasters, for that matter? So who who are your typical customers, and how do they benefit? Yeah, we're a neutral data source. So, in fact, we're the largest independent source uh, of both publishing ownership information and cue sheets in the world. Uh, and when I say independent, we're not affiliated or owned by a music publisher, a record label, um, a CMO, or a PRO. We're our own unique, uh, our, our, our sort of own unique company uh, existing as an intermediary in the space. And our typical customers are the platforms. So whether, uh, whether on the broadcasting side of our business, they are television broadcasters in the United States. Uh, we help them administer the per program license uh, and we sort of uh, help the broadcasters organize their data uh, and their rights information uh, and work with the PROs uh, on their license fees. And then in the other part of our business, we work with digital platforms, connected fitness platforms, social media companies that are building a music distribution presence, uh, again, to help them organize their usage information tie that usage information to uh, music publishing and composition level uh, uh, data, and then make sure that the owners of those compositions, independent publishers, songwriters, uh, and the like, uh, get paid for that art. How have you experienced um, attitudes towards data changing? It feels like data used to be something that we locked away, that we kept in our own little uh, spreadsheets, et cetera. And now I feel like there's really been a, a sea change, not just in music, but in, you know, I don't know we could, what we call it, entertainment, the creative industries overall. How have you experienced that, if you have? Yeah, I, listen, we want to see more transparent data. We're a, we're a data company. And... I think one of the most rewarding things that's happened in music, and as you said, you know, more broadly across entertainment over the last several years, is an expansion in the level of transparency around both usage uh, and ownership data in, in the market. Uh, that I think, if we can be a small part of uh, making that change in the industry, that's very gratifying for us. Uh, and I think the industry is moving in that direction. I think. When it comes from the, ultimately the need for transparency today is really being driven by both sides of the ecosystem. From a rights holder perspective, uh, creatives should demand uh, perfect clarity into uh, what they're being paid for and how much they're being paid for it. And on the other side, uh, rights users 
want to have that clarity of, of how their dollars, the dollars that they're paying into the licensing ecosystem are ultimately flowing back to creators who they're compensating, have visibility and sustainability around um, that expense side of, of their business. So both sides are really, I think, looking for transparency. And that's why I think you're seeing more of it in the intermediaries and in, in the market. And ultimately, both sides are coming and finding to, finding common ground on the issue of transparency. It's a it's kind of an exciting moment, I have to say. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I think it is too. Are there other trends or influences or you know dynamics you're starting to see? You you know you get to hear about a lot of people building many things or trying to build many things. What um you know what are you tracking on? Where do you think innovation is headed at this moment? I think. There's a couple of things happening in, in the music industry that are pretty exciting. First of all, global distribution, more widespread global distribution. And that's a function of smartphone penetration in, in emerging markets and the availability of, uh, you know, rural, uh, rural wireless, uh, wireless internet coverage in emerging markets uh, and the development of audio streaming uh, in in, in those emerging markets. So you're seeing music consumed and music consumed legally uh, in more markets today than you ever have been before. And I think, honestly, the music platforms, you know, the Spotify's and the Amazon's and the Apple's of the world are to be, along with the Angamis and the Savans and the more um, regional platforms are to be commended for this because They've built a technology that is exposing music on a legal basis uh, to audiences across the globe uh, and, and, and getting that music out there and taking advantage of the, as I said, the internet infrastructure that, that exists and smartphone penetration that's happening. So global distribution, I think, is, is, is one thing. And obviously, we at Music Reports want to be there with our customers to support them as they go into, into new and less developed copyright markets to, from day one, uh, establish, or at least help establish, uh, a legitimate copyright regime uh, and legitimate compensation for art in those, in those places. I think the second thing that's happening is music is popping up, not just in pure play audio, but in all of these different end markets that's become very interesting. And, and you saw that over the pandemic a little bit with music being used and driving connected fitness and social media companies. I think that's the kind of second and third innings of how music is going to be distributed and, and sort of play out uh, in, in new end markets. Obviously, we, we, like many others, are tracking music in the metaverse. Uh, my friend Vicki Nauman has done a lot of work uh, on this topic, and I think she's one of the real experts in the space. But the, the rules of music usage in the metaverse are still being written. Uh, and the use of music in the metaverse, people still trying to figure out how, how they use it. That's pretty exciting. So I, I think that's the thing that we're tracking is what are the new end markets um, for, for music usage? And we want to be there um, to help write those solutions. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for uh, music lovers worldwide, especially as big markets in South Asia, Southeast Asia open up, Latin America, um, where there is just all sorts of music that was not in, quote unquote, 
you know, in the traditional catalogs, right? So, you know, what people listen to in India is so radically different from what people listen to in the U.S. There's not a lot of overlap. And so it's an interesting moment where my I, where there's going to be some great cross-pollinations. That are already, we're already starting to see the first signs that it's really, really cool from a, I think he's purely from like a music obsessive perspective. <laughs> um, so speaking of the future and crazy things to come, let's get a little sci-fi here for a second. Uh, where When you think of an ideal music future, you're sort of, utopian um, music world what do you see yeah listen I'm I probably have less imagination than most people you talk to on this question because I'm like you know I come at this kind of from a data nerd I see I see well you could see a beautiful future where a stream happens and everyone gets paid the next day (laughs) well I think this is this would be my dream is uh, really really clear tracking from the source data at the moment of creation all the way through to the usage and then back you know so those two flows of information going into the system from the moment of creation and then money going back through the system uh at the moment of usage perfect information at each step of that process and actually i don't think we're that far away from it and i think the solutions for it the technology solutions for it in large part exist um, what I would be really interested in is uh, the company that can put all of that together, the various stages and steps of the music ecosystem uh, and create kind of the, the common language uh, for the infrastructure and backbone of music. I think that's a big, big opportunity uh, and one that, again, hopefully at Music Reports will be, will be part of. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision that <laughs> that people that that the information and then the money could fly back and forth um, the way we do with you know credit card transactions. That would be amazing. Um, all right, cool. So to wrap up the speed round, I'm just curious what the music reports team. I know you can't make it yourself, unfortunately, Drew, but you will have a colleague there who's going to be a lively participant in one of our panels, which is really exciting. Um, I'm curious what you guys are hoping to get out of the music tectonics conference this year. I think we're uh, just excited to see people live. Uh, Humans. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Obviously it's a chance for us to get the word out about our company and uh, see our customers. Uh, and see potential, uh, get an opportunity to, to meet with uh, potential new uh, clients as well as uh, other types of business partners. I just think seeing people face-to-face, this is probably the, the, uh, maybe the first or the second conference that we've been to since the end of COVID. And mm-hmm. I think that's so important in our business to be able to see people face-to-face, uh, you know, IRL and uh, have that opportunity to talk about the important things that are going on uh, in our business and the ways in which we can collaborate. I think what we saw in, this is a corollary to your point, but I think what we saw in the, in the pandemic is the things that we did very well in our company while we were working remotely and, and while the pandemic was going on around us uh, was we were very efficient at the tasks that we had always done. Uh, in fact, if anything, we were more productive at uh, the things that we were used to doing. Where it's hard is innovation. And I think innovation and doing new things are really hard without being able to see people face to face. I don't know if that means five days a week we're all in the <laughs> office together, but, but I do think it's, I, I do think it's um, 
you know, routine and recurring face-to-face in-person interaction, whether it's in conferences or in offices, uh, in workspaces around the country. I just think that the benefit of in-person interaction uh, to drive innovation, uh, just you, you can't beat it. I agree totally. That was one of the hardest things during the pandemic was to be creative with other people while <laughs> while being alone in my home. <laughs> so I completely- I don't know how I frankly I don't know how musicians did it. Yeah. Uh, how new music was created when you couldn't be with other people uh, for songwriting, you know, for songwriting sessions in person uh, or recording sessions in a studio. I, I, it's just it's remarkable that music and the creative industries still um, still generated new content, still generated new art during that period. I'm curious if there's going to be a musicologist or an art historian who's going to look back and say, oh, yes, this was obviously a late 2020 track. Is there going to be a sound that, like, you know, our our, um, descendants will recognize as obviously pandemic? Um, Instead of the the emo era, it's the pandemic. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one is full on isolation, (laughs) (laughs) isolation core. Well, thanks so much, Drew, for your time and your insights and for joining us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey, Music Tectonics podcast listeners. It's Shaylee here to give you some more Music Tectonics conference updates. The next update I want to share with you all is what is going to be happening on the morning of October 27th. So we are going to be at Expert Dojo, which is this rooftop open air venue just a couple blocks from the beach. And we are going to hear a presentation on the future of music from Media Research. We're going to hear from analysts Chris Dakrar and Tatiana Sirasana as they give a data-driven presentation around how music is becoming a background activity as media consumption transitions to platforms like TikTok and Twitch rather than traditional DSPs like Spotify. Don't miss this presentation and all the other great things happening at the Music Tectonics Conference this year in Santa Monica, California, October 25th through 27th. Get your Music Tectonics Conference badge at musictectonics.com. Eventrix Master Tour is the world's leading platform for tour management. The platform includes tour personnel, travel itineraries, venue details, day sheets, guest lists, set lists, accounting, tasks, and more. Master Tour allows for online collaboration, offline access, backup and security features, and uh, the ever-important reports. Eventric is launching deeper venue services in its upcoming product to provide accurate information to touring companies. And I hope we'll be able to dig into a little bit about what that means for the live music industry today, because we have Paul Bradley with us. Paul is CEO and founder of Eventric, and he will be speaking at the Music Tectonics Conference coming up in October. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, it's a, del- it's a delight. So, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about your background briefly and what led you to found Eventric? Yeah, I mean, this will be very brief because it isn't much of a background, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the short story is went to college for journalism, started a promotion company. This was in Des Moines, Iowa back in the 90s and uh, really wasn't the you know cultural center for music at the time. And I brought in, you know, just started bringing the bands that I liked. Um, at clubs and um, through the school. So that got me really interested in the music business. Um, 
aside from just the music. So we, uh, I'm sorry, when I went back to Chicago after graduating, I interned at record labels. I did kind of assistant tour management. I, you know, did assistant marketing for small bands um, and really you know, had no intention of what that was going to bring. Um, about a year into it, one of the uh, the labels I was at needed a drummer for one of the bands. It was, um, you know, a total kind of circumstantial thing. I happened to play the drums not very well. They didn't care. They just <laughs> were more excited that I could drive a van, you know, for 12 hours without passing out. So that was just supposed to be for a couple of weeks. Um, a band called The Drovers, which was a big Bloomington, Indiana hit. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so, but that two years two years turned into nine. Um, during the time I was drumming tour management, um, kind of assistant managing, doing a lot of the, you know, settlements and contract negotiation. I mean, this was a small band, but we were doing 220 shows a year. So, you know, it was, it was pretty busy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of free time. And during that free time, I mean, as anybody in the small band or big bang knows, I mean, most of the day you are just sitting around, you know, there's not a lot to do. Um, so kind of in the side of that, I was just, constantly developing the software to track our band and track the contracts and the gigs. Um, if we had hotels, just all the logistical information, which again, at a small band isn't a lot. It can fit on mm -hmm. a piece of paper. Uh, but I was building that into a database so that we would have, you know, a reference of what we had done in the past um, when we go back. Because a lot of these venues, you know, we were hitting three or four times a year. So it seemed important to know what we did, what the guarantees were, what the total count at the door was, how much merch we sold, if we did any interviews, if we did have a hotel, who was our special contact that would give us discounts, that kind of thing. Um, so really, I just I evolved that over years of touring. Um, and fortunately, um, right in the middle of that, we um, hired a crew team um, from the Smashing Pumpkins and one of the guys, Ian Kuhn, who's my co-founder, uh, he had been doing a similar, developed a very kind of pre-master tour application for the Smashing Pumpkins, again, way back in the mid-90s. We, He and I toured, um, he was a technician, uh, um, monitors, or he did our sound. Yeah, he did our sound. We, we hired way more people than we needed for a small band. It was, a, <laughs> it, it was like more crew member than the bands in a small band. So, But uh, the fortunate thing is we, Ian and I kind of combined um, mm -hmm. some of the thoughts of the software, pulled everything together, um, and then halfway, probably a year into it, he was hired by the Dave Matthews band to be their um, monitor engineer. Um, and so he brought this, his software to the band and said, hey, let's look at this. Uh, they were very supportive um, in advancing what that was. And this mm -hmm. is all pre-master tour stuff. So long story short, that's kind of how I got into the business uh, with no background intention of me being in the music business or certainly being in the technology side of the music business. Um, but then for years, years, 2000, you know, through the 2000s, we just saw this growing, growing need, you know, in inefficiencies and antiquation of processes that the entire touring industry was using. Um, so it was, it was very easy to take our simple software and inject it into the, or insert it into, you know, the, the touring world because everything was being done literally through fax machines and three ring binders and papers and phone calls. Um, so there was really no, um, you know, I mean, it, it was the hardest thing was adoption, user adoption. Yeah. People were very comfortable of using their old school methods that they had been using for 20 years. So it was a very slow process to get um, customer adoption into the system. But um, fortunately, we had a lot of support from very high levels of mm -hmm. touring. So that influenced, um, you know, the, a big segment of our uh, customer base because we had some of the biggest 
bands through the association of Dave Matthews using it after a few years. Um, so it looked a lot more impre- impressive than it probably was. Um, and we were kind of uh, entering into an, you know, kind of this industry, very niche industry, very niche product that no one else was doing. Um, so that it very slow. I mean, I still tell people this is like a 25 year startup, even though we're, we've you know gotten to the kind of position of level we're at. So you've seen a long span of the live industry and its ups and downs and, you know, changes. I'm wondering what you're seeing right now um, that is really making you think, what are the current emerging trends in live music and tech that you're tracking? And how are you imagining Master Tour might change based on what you see on the horizon? Um, I mean, well, the obvious thing that changed was COVID. Yeah. You you couldn't, you know, that you, you could not have crafted a more disruptive, um, you know, thing to hit our entire industry than COVID. I mean, the, the music industry, which has been fortunate for my business, uh, has lasted through, you know, so many different market, you know, um, conditions, Mm -hmm. you know, through, um, you know, recessions and through just up and down swings in the economy. Um, you know, music, live music in particular has always been kind of an escape for people. So even during a recession, even during, you know, kind of hard economic times, people go out to see live music. It's, it's, um, you know, been one of those constant things since I've been in the business since in the nineties. So obviously COVID hitting when the entire world shut down and the headlines were don't go into any room with more than 10 people. I mean, that pretty much just says yeah. don't go to any concerts yeah. for the rest of your life. So we were really worried when that hit, um, obviously, you know, with, with the original projection of COVID from two weeks to two months to two years, mm. um, you know, it was that kind of constant struggle. So, I mean, there, there's a whole side story of, of, you know, our, you know, how we got through COVID. Um, we were super fortunate, you know, most of our business is just, is people. Uh, we didn't have a lot of material costs. We didn't have inventory. We didn't have, you know, goods and services that we had to keep on the shelves and, um, so it was really just about managing kind of our headcount. Mm. Um, you know, we lost eighty percent of our business when COVID hit. Wow! Um, immediately within the first month. Yeah. Um, but again, we were fortunate. We got through it with a lot of the PPP funding. A lot of very just. I mean, every, every single one of our customers like, hey, this is obviously not you know you guys. We yeah. are not touring. We can't use our software. When did you see um, so, things? So COVID has. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. When did when did things start to pick up again? Um. I mean, almost exactly two years to the date, huh. uh, which is kind of, um, you know, I mean, if you look at our, our user graph, it almost, you know, I think has a lot of similarities to kind of, you know, the state of the economy during yeah. COVID. Um, so we, I mean, everything collapsed March, April, 2020. And then, um, you know, there was that little hint of, you know, revival kind of, I mean, I, I put these dates based on concerts and festivals. So I mm-hmm. just remember Lollapalooza of 2021, uh, which was August, uh, you know, the first week of August, everyone thinking that everything was fine and back to normal. You know, Chicago in particular lifted all of the, uh, yeah. you know, the um, gathering bands. So, um, but that was short-lived. Omicron hit and then it kind of really didn't, it, the music business in general just said, okay, we're not going to attempt to mm-hmm. wrestle with this until it's over, over. So really almost two years to the date, it was March of 2022 that uh, everything just immediately started pushing right back up. And, you know, we've, we've fortunately retained or, or kind of recaptured, you know, almost uh, you know twenty percent more of our original overall high on customer subscriptions. You know, we're back to a full headcount in the company here in Chicago. Um, it, it, it's it, you know it's busier than it's ever been, 
Amazing. Um, I don't expect that to last. Yeah. yeah. But so it's, it's been a great summer and, um, you know, with, with kind of intermediate scares of COVID, but I think the touring world, kind of the big trend on the touring side is all the bands are out. I mean, if, if they're out, they're playing, you know, double book shows, uh, which is bringing a lot of challenges to the music industry, kind of on the supply chain in general, because it just bounced back so quickly. Venues, vendors, um, you know, agencies, everybody was not, I think, you know, ready for kind of this wave of renewal in the, yeah. um, you know, as fast as it came back. Wow. So you're also thinking, you're not only thinking about the touring company side, but you're also thinking about the venue side now. So without going too deep into any secret sauces or <laughs> as yet to be revealed um, sides yeah. of this new um, product that you're you're coming out with shortly, can you tell us a little bit more about how, you know, how you're imagining these venue services at Eventric and how they're developing? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the you know, our core business, forever since we started this has been to cert, you know, to give software services for the tour. Um, and by the tour, I mean, it's, you know, the tour management, which, you know, think of the executive team of a tour, you know, the CEO, CFO, COO, which is the tour manager, production manager, tour accountant, road manager of a tour. You know, we've always been servicing um, these individuals that service that work for the tour on the road. You know, 99% of master tour is, moving a touring organization, you know, from one place to another, um, organizing the event, referencing data, you know, from previous activity, you know, to help make better informed decisions on, you know, how they can tour efficiently, where they can stay, you know, kind of the best practices for going on a tour. Um, and, and really from the, you know, it was pretty quickly in kind of the vision of the company that I thought, well, if we can do that, then, you know, we should be able to service kind of the other, um, you know, entities in the music business, you know, the promoter side, um, the label side, the booking agency side, um, all the vendors, um, and especially the venues. So when Master Tour now works, they are kind of, um, you know, pulling in all this information to play at a venue, big or small. And, and we deal with bands that play at the smallest venues, coffee shops, you know, 100, 200 seaters, all the way up to, you know, the biggest uh, arenas and stadiums in the world. So, um, you know, meaning that sometimes a tour, you know, just has two people on it. And sometimes the tour has you know, 350 people on our service. Uh, so it's quite a range. So the next service we are providing, which will be launched in, um, in 2023, early 2023, is for the venue side. And one of the biggest pains that um, exists in the touring world is the advance process. So once the tour you know, gets the information that, hey, we're playing at, you know, venue A in city A. Um, it's up to them to find out who all the correct people are to communicate with, you know, to say, hey, this is what we're bringing in. This is how many buses, how many people, how many trucks, how many, um, this is the times we're coming in. This is the hotels we're staying at. So there's a pretty detailed level, if you can imagine what it takes to put on a show, mm -hmm. um, you know, from load in to load out. And, you know, these, these, crew and these folks are working 18 hour days you know a lot of people going to concerts don't you know they go and they see this gigantic stage these huge performances you know pyrotechnics lighting and this uh, you know amazing spectacle and well that that's most of the time been built in you know six or eight hours that day and most of the time that exact setup is going to be in another venue 300 miles away the next day so our venue system is going to help coordinate all that advanced process. I mean, and, and right now it's literally still done. These multi-million dollar events are still done with Excel sheets, phone calls, voice messages, text messages, 
Um, and it's a, it's it's a very archaic system. It's it's it works. You know, it's the only way that um, you know that the people have been doing it. There, there there really isn't a service to help. So we want to basically help connect the tour with the venue um, through an electronic advance process. And this is going to really, I think, speed up the efficiencies of the advance. It's going to give the venues and the tours kind of a direct conduit of communication, you know, instead of five or six different platforms. Um, it's going to give the venue services kind of the same historical information that the tours have. So mm -hmm. they're not doing all this redundant data entry. They know who the tour is. They know who the contact people are. They can look at past information of what they did, what the artist liked, what succeeded, you know, what was disruptive. Um, and then the kind of the, the bigger point to the venue service is to give venues a lot of um, scheduling and hiring ability. You know, yeah. We have a network now of 290,000 users in Master Tour. Um, you know, there's there's tens, you know, 20,000 plus venues um, in our system. And um, that service will allow the venues to help kind of just organize for a show, um, look at information about the tour, organize for the show, manage guest lists. Um, and I think the, the thing that we're really most excited about is standardizing the technical package that the venues use to convey their information to an artist. So yeah. every venue has a tech pack that puts all of the information about the venue from, you know, capacity to backstage location to stage mm -hmm. size in a document. Um, we're going to standardize that into one template. So whether you're playing in a small venue or a hundred thousand seat venue, like all these tech packs look the same. So it'll just kind of bring that, that, you know, consistency to the industry, which I, I believe is really needed. That's really cool. It's it's amazing to think about all these details that could be standardized and automated that haven't been yet. I mean, especially when you're dealing with technically very complex stuff like pyrotechnics or certain lighting setups or projections, um, where I'm sure the venue is right. always like, uh, you know, it's they're having to reinvent the wheel a lot um, to, to make sure load in goes smoothly, etc. So that's, that's really cool. That'll be It'll be interesting yeah. to see what, yeah. um, what you know, production managers, et cetera, can do with some of that extra brain space or time, you know, will things get. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you look at some of these tour managers, production managers, again, they're the equivalent of a C-level, you know, job at a you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 company. Mm -hmm. These guys are, you know, doing in some cases you know, multi-million dollar events every single day. Yeah. Um, and you think of all the variables that can go wrong, that can disrupt the show, uh, not just from, you know, the performance, the attendance, um, you know, you think of all the local um, conditions that they have to be aware of and regulations and rules in each county and each city, um, you know, but then you think of all of these small things that could, you know, result in tens of thousands of dollars of extra expenditure that, you know, they didn't plan for. Yeah. Um, these these people, these tour management, these production management are dealing with this with with really no. I mean, aside from their internal team, which is mm -hmm. very small, um, you know, they don't have a big support service, and they're reinventing themselves. I mean, not reinventing themselves, but they're they're doing this every day in a different location. You know? So you don't have this like comfort, you know, yeah, you know, office network. I mean, literally, you can be running a multi-million dollar tour and find out you don't have internet for three hours when you get to the venue. You know, these are some basic yes. things. Yeah. Um, you know, so yes, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the challenges we've had is how to quantify the value we bring. And mm -hmm. it's really just about saving time for people. Yeah. And if these users can save a few hours a day because they're, you know, eliminating redundant data entry, mm -hmm. they can, they can concentrate on things that, you know, result in, you know, big decisions, you know, um, 
you know, identifying you know, future problems um, that they wouldn't have. And, you know, a big part of it is making sure that the comfort level for the band and the crew, you know, is, is there, you know, and that's the other biggest problem with our industry. Um, on the road, you know, not, not, I mean, just think of all of the things that a crew person that tours most of the year, most of their life has to go through from being away from family, um, you know, not being a consistent location, overworked, you know, yeah. 18, 16, 18 hour days. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, a very, um, difficult thing, you know, to handle. And, and one of the things with the tours that I think we can have is just kind of, you know, better help or helping with better personnel management, you know, that, um, and, and that literally can make or break a tour, um, sometimes yeah. you know, the mental health, physical health of the artist or the, the touring crew. That makes sense. When you have more predictable downtime, you can kind of manage your self-care a little bit better rather than just like, oh, yeah, now you yes, have a random right. half hour, but then you may be on call right. or, you know, it's it's tough. Well, right. well, Paul, this has been really, really interesting. And, and it's kind of great to get to go backstage, so to speak, behind some of these massive tours and how uh, technology might help them. So as we wrap up this speed round, what are you hoping Eventric gets out of the Music Tectonics Conference this year? What are you what are you hoping to to do in Santa Monica as you bop around, uh, and... no, I mean we're we're really <laughs> excited. It's obviously our, our first year um, going there, and um, you know one of the things that um, you know we, we're pretty limited in our space on conferences, yeah. and um, you know we are in the music tech space, so I, I just can't wait to be there, meet other music tech entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, see what other ideas are formulating. Um, you know, and that's I think what I mean. You know, in this industry, there are very few. Um, opportunities like that. So we, we, we can't wait. This is awesome. going to be a great you know, experience for us. Great. Well, I can't wait to hear what conversations come out of uh, your time at yeah. Music Tectonics. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye! You're listening to Music Tectonics.